0: Deuteronomy, chapter 6, verses 4 through 9, and then also verses 20 through 25. Hear God's word to us this morning. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit down in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. When your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all that He has commanded, the commandments before the Lord our God, as He has commanded us. The Word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Oh God, may you meet us in your Word this morning by your Spirit, wherever we find ourselves, whether those with children or those without children. Help us to get a picture, Lord, of what it means to grow in faith. For all of us to grow in faith and help us to know, Lord, that you are the God who always is moving towards us and not away from us, wherever we find ourselves. And so meet us this morning in the power of your word. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Well, if you're visiting this morning, um, perhaps you are wondering um, what the sermon series is <laughs> that we'll be talking about in a Q&A next um, Next week after the service. It's a series on sexuality, human sexuality, which we've uh, been in since September. Um, Some might say it's a little over the top to preach on sexuality for nine months, but I feel like I'm just scratching the surface. And this morning we reflect on something that is quite fundamental to human sexuality, true sexuality. God's very first address to human beings after he created them was this, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And since the beginning of time universally men and women have fundamentally expressed sexuality through having children. Conceiving, bearing children. But we all know that um, simply having children is just the beginning of a lifelong journey. And it's so true with our sexuality as well. Is that It's not as if it's just our sexuality that gets us children and then it turns into something else but actually it's the raising of children that is fundamental to that aspect of our human nature that that um, is driven towards fruitfulness and bounty and so this morning what I want to reflect on is what does it mean to obey that command in chapter 6 verse 7 where it says to teach diligently to our children the commands of God and I might phrase it this way what does it mean to raise Kingdom children. What does it mean to raise children as Christians in the light of this reality of this inbreaking of God's kingdom in the world? And this text, probably of all texts in the Bible, is one of the most helpful and fruitful for answering this question of how we do that. And that's really what I want to address this morning is how do we do this? What does this look like? And so there's, there's three things that this that this, uh, this text teaches us about um, forming and raising children as Christians. And so let me give you those three things, and we will circle back to them. One, that the all children, and this is true for all of us, friends. It's not just, it's not just true for children. It's, it's actually true for just becoming a Christian and growing deep in your faith. One, that we need to give our children a grand central story. Two, we need to give them, we need reinforcing ritual. And then, three, they need models of devotion. So there's a grand central story, reinforcing ritual, and models of devotion. Now it's important I think to put this chapter in context of Deuteronomy. The book of Deuteronomy means the second the second law or the second giving of the law. The people of e- the people of Israel have been led out of Egypt, out of the land of bondage and slavery, into the wilderness, and they were disobedient. And so they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And now they're on the cusp of going into the promised land. The first generation is dying off, and the children of those who left Egypt are now adults. And Moses is addressing them. And he's instructing them, giving them the law again, and saying, this is your obligation. And one of the main themes through the book of Deuteronomy is children. So actually, formation of children runs throughout the whole book. And it's fundamental to uh, going into the land and possessing it is teaching our children. And you see that in this text right here. And chapter 6 is very important. It really is a a pivot point in the whole book. Chapter 5, Moses repeats again the Ten Commandments. And then chapter 6, we get the great commandment, right? Love the Lord your God. Love the Lord your God. Hear, O Israel. Chapter, uh, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children. In the Jewish tradition, this is called the Shema, which means here. And it, as Jesus says in the New Testament, says, is the greatest commandment. This is, in a sense, a commandment that is a summary of all the commandments together. And that as parents, our fundamental obligation in life for teaching our children is to love God. Love of God. That is the first and primary truth about what it means to be created in the image of God. We were created for God. We are created to love God. And as parents, our first obligation in raising our children is to teach them that fundamental truth upon which all the law hangs together. But what's very important is, is that the great commandment, the greatest commandment, is framed by a grand central story. And I want you to look at verse 20 Of our text. So when your son or your daughter asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of these testimonies and statutes and rules that the Lord your God our God commanded you, then you shall say this, right? We were in Pharaoh, we were we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand, and the Lord showed signs and wonders and great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household and before our eyes. And he brought us out from there, that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to our forefathers. See, when our children ask us that question that they always ask us when we tell them to do something, why? Why? Why do I have to do that? And the answer is the story. When our children ask us, why do we do this as believers? Why should I love God? Or why should I go to church? Your response should be instruction in the story. It should not be, as we often do as parents, because I said so, or because God said so. That's often how we grow up in church, right? Sometimes we grow up in churches where we ask, well, why is it like this? And we just say, well, just God says so. Just you know. And there are times at which you have to just trust what God says, and sometimes, kids, you have to just trust what your parents say. And yet, what you see that I think is so important is that Moses instructs you have to shape them in the story you have to instruct them in the story and what is the story the story is that we were slaves in Egypt and the Lord brought us out and he brought us into the land the promised land flowing with milk and honey that's the story of Exodus but our story and baptism is the sign and symbol of that our story is that in Jesus Christ we have life. He died, he rose from again, and our life is in him. That's the story that we're instructing our children in. And when Moses even, uh, when he gives the ten, uh, records the Ten Commandments again, before the first commandment, it says, God says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. So it's so important that the command is always framed by the story. The Ten Commandments are, say, are framed. What we ought to do, our obligation as human beings to love God, to have no other God before us, is framed first by what God has done for us. He's led us out of Egypt. Now, most of you, especially those of you with children now, know how important stories are and how formative stories are, right? Our evenings, at least an hour, hour and a half, are spent reading stories to our children. And when they get to that reading age, they just consume stories. They just Kids love stories. They, they eat stories like food. Because stories are just, that's how they learn to orient themselves in the world. It's how they learn to make sense of the world. How they learn to make sense of good and wrong. What to do. Stories play a fundamental role, not just in the lives of children and shaping them, but really all of us. And I, I just want to reflect a few moments. Like, how do stories form us? And it's so important for us to get this understanding in our minds as Christians, shaping our children. Because whatever stories have authoritative grip on our lives, stories become authoritative for us. Because stories capture the imagination, right? And that which captures your imagination has authority. Has authority to direct the course of your life. And I think it's important for us as parents, we always have to be asking this question, are our children not just learning the sort of commands of God, their obligations to love God, but are they learning the story? And is the story imaginatively told? Is the story being told in such a way that it captures their hearts? Because that's what stories do, is they capture our heart. And the reality is, is there's all kinds of stories that are trying to compete for the hearts of our children. Not just our children, us as well. I mean, the whole temptation to idolatry it, throughout the scriptures and in our lives today, is that we are tempted by other stories that oftentimes seem more compelling, more emotionally moving, more satisfying than actually the story of Jesus' dying and rising. And there's all of these stories that are always tempting us away, that life seems to make more sense under this story instead of the Christian story. And so, as parents, we have to be very attentive to the kinds of stories that are shaping and forming our kids. And the reality is this, is you cannot protect your kids from all the different stories, right? I mean, there's, there's a sense in which you have to think about those stories that are impacting them. But the, here's the Christian response. You don't necessarily, you can't remove them from the stories and their impact. But what you have to do, what we have to do is we have to tell better stories. We have to out-narrate, in a sense. And that's so fundamental. This is true not just for children, but for all of us. That there's a way in the Christian life that when Christ becomes really real in your life, the very basis of your identity that structures all your decision making and your timing, your schedule, there's a sense in which Christ has, the story of Christ, has captured your heart and your imagination. It's not just something in your head, it's not just a bunch of information, it's not just an abstract story that you then put away. So stories have authority to shape and form our hearts. They capture, they become authoritative. And when they become authoritative, they become identity forming. All identity. All of our sense of ourself in the world. Who am I? What am I supposed to do? Where am I going? These are all story questions. If you, uh, if your parents are immigrants to the United States, and you were born here, a big part of your identity is the fact that your parents came from another country here. That's part of your story. And part of your story is you're trying to figure out, what is my identity as an American, in the light of the fact that my parents come from another country. See, that's part of the story, and it shapes your identity. And so stories are always shaping our identities. And I think sometimes we we just stop paying attention to the stories, because many of us, especially those of us who live in sort of the dominant story culture, we kind of just take the story for granted and just say, well, this is the way the world is. And we don't often see the way that there is a story that's shaping us. Sometimes... In very powerful ways away from Christ. I want to draw your attention to a couple pronouns in our text that are quite revealing, I think. In uh, chapter 20, when the son or the daughter asks, What's the meaning? What's the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God commanded you? Commanded you, not us. It's interesting, right? That the, the question of the child is often. I don't quite understand and identify with this yet as my own. And the response of the, of the, the father or the mother is that we, we were feral slaves in Egypt. He brought, the, before I ours, he did this. He brought us out. See, friends, part of raising our children as Christians is helping them understand that, that our story is their story. <laughs> they participate in our story. It's not just something out there. It's something that they own themselves, that they are beneficiaries of. The story that captures the imagination is the beginning of law. The story that captures the imagination is the beginning of law because the grand central story of our lives is that which gives meaning and plausibility to all of our actions and what we do in the world. Story has the power to command behavior. That's so important to see. Again, back to the Ten Commandments. God says, you know, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. If you know this, if you witness this, if this lives in your bones, these commandments will flow from that reality. And that's the thing, is that story has the power to command behavior. We always act. We, we always imagine ourselves as actors in a drama and we're playing out a script. And if you want to know what story you belong to, if you're curious, am I, do I have the Christian story in my life? Friends, what, what, what has the force of law in your life? What has the force of law? What is, what is the reality of your life that has the power of law such that you will not disobey it? You want to obey it. Friend, that's the story of your life, right? Right? Stories guide our lives, and these are the stories that we bring our children up in, whether we realize it or whether we like it or not. But the most important thing about this story, friends, is not simply, it's the gospel story. That's the story we're bringing our kids into. Just as the rite of circumcision was a rite of initiation of children into the covenant, that the promises were for them, baptism in the same way as us saying, you belong You belong to the story. This story is your story. God's grace is your grace. His forgiveness is your forgiveness. And friends, it is our responsibility to teach our kids not just that they ought to love God, but that God loves them, right? That's so important. Yes, we have to teach our children to love God, but to framing that love is that God loves them. They are beloved child. Just just as when Jesus was baptized... The heavens open and the spirit descends in the dove and the father says from heaven, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And our children need to hear recited, repeated, over and over and over again. Not just are you my son, you're God's son, you're God's daughter in whom he is well pleased. That is something as parents we have to drum and teach and beat into the heads of our children and ourselves, right? Okay, so we have to give our children a grand central story, a compelling story, an imaginative story that captures their heart and their imagination. And one of the ways we ha- to do this is not simply narrating and telling this in a Sunday school setting or from the pulpit. But we do it through ritual, through reinforcing ritual. Now I want to draw your attention back to our text in verse 6. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and you shall talk of of them when you sit in the house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be frontlets between your eyes, and you shall write them on the doorposts of your gates. I want to draw your attention to all the different ritual actions that this text calls us to do. To teach, to talk, to keep, to walk, recite, bind, write. It's not simply good intentions that forms and shapes a story in us. It's this ritual action. It's this liturgy of life. It's a pattern of living where our lives are structured in terms of our schedules and time. Morning, evening, noon, it's, it's ordered in terms of our whole life. It's the art on our, on, our, on our walls and on our doorposts. Everywhere you turn, you're encountering this story, this reality, the love of God. God's love for me and my love for God. It has to permeate the pores of our life. And this is what we mean by a liturgy. I often use this word around here, is that there's a liturgy. A liturgy is a pattern of living. We all have liturgies, even if you don't recognize it. There's some pattern, some ritual pattern, that, to your life. And what chaining our children requires a sort of intentionality about that. Um, Michael Lindsay, who is a sociologist now, um, he's the president of Gordon College, he wrote a book a couple of years ago called View from the Top. And in this book, he spent 10 years interviewing all uh, what he calls platinum leaders, presidents, former presidents, CEOs, um, business leaders, movers and shakers, basically, um, of the world. And he compiles all of this in-depth data and research um, on all these various um, leaders, trying to get a sense of what were those things that formed them that kind of made them great leaders. And on his treatment of education, especially primary education, early education, he comes to this... uh, somewhat surprising conclusion um, or counterintuitive conclusion about the importance of where uh, pre-college or maybe even undergrad how important it is and and the conclusion is that actually the prestige of the college that you attend um, was was kind of marginal actually what he said was most important about forming these great leaders is what he called the hidden curriculum and the hidden curriculum is actually not so much uh, you know, the prestige or, or how, how rigorous uh, the academic load was, but what was, what was the hidden, the, that, that culture, the, 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 um, the culture and values of the institution, the atmosphere, if you will, that created a kind of um, formative power such that when, when kids left, that those schools, what they left was with the hidden curriculum, that, that, the thing that seeped in all the pores. That's precisely what, what, what Moses is saying, is that the hidden curriculum of your homes needs to be the love of God. It needs to permeate all the pores. It needs to be that thing that, yes, you talk about it explicitly, but people, they come away and they think the love of God is what saturates and influences the culture of this home. And you can't do this without ritual. You can't do this without a kind of liturgy and, and intentionality and pattern in life. And I think as Americans, especially American Protestants that are influenced by um, evangelical, evangelicalism, we are, we're, we're kind of spiritual, not religious culture, where we tend to think about questions of religion and spirituality as interior. That, that, that's the interior me. And, and it, it needs to, for it to be authentic, it has to come from within me. And, and if I were to speak in the voice of another, like in a liturgy or a, a pre-written prayer, that's somehow not authentic or not real. And so there, there's different ways in which we tend to resist this idea of, 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 of ritual instruction around spiritual things. But the reality is, is that when you look at the scriptures, both in the Old Testament and the New, there's always a sense that you need to have structures and ritual that form and shape you spiritually. Again, you talk, you keep, you walk, you recite, you fix, you bind, you write, you break bread together, you baptize children, you show up for church, you do morning prayer, you confess your sins. See, these are those things that form and shape the hidden curriculums of our life. The, um, this, this verse, um, you shall bind them, this is verse 8, you shall bind them, that is the commands on your hand, and they shall be like frontlets between your eyes. In Orthodox Jewish communities, even today, you, you'll sometimes go and you'll see Jewish men walking around with these little boxes uh, with leather straps around their foreheads or on their hands. And it's, it's really a, a kind of a literal take on this text. Um, and we might sort of, you know, kind of look at that as Protestants and Evangel- Christians and say, well, you know, oh, they're very legalistic, they don't get it. But there's a deeper truth to this idea, is that there's a something about to internally appropriate a truth and a story. It needs to have an external, symbolic reality and ritual in our life. And there's a way that that things come from the outside in. It's not just you sort of, just kind of feel it one day and think, oh, the story is there. There's a way you have to intentionally form and shape. The reality is, is that if you look at your greatest loves in life, if you want to find the most ritual in your life, look at the things you love the most. The things you love the most there's going to be ritual. There's going to be regularity and repeated action around those things. Why? Because you need to enshrine it and protect it. And it's no different with the love of God. Without ritual in life, and I'm not, and again, you know, there's a way that you can do ritual that is sort of empty and meaningless, and I'll talk about that in a minute. But friends, a life without ritual spiritually is a chaotic spiritual life. (laughs) Basically like, well, I'll go to church whenever I feel it. Or I'll pray whenever I feel it. Like if, if your approach to the Christian life as an adult is, I pray when I feel like praying. Or I read my Bible when, or I go to church. I mean, you will never grow. You need ritual commitment to sort of create and shape desire in you. It's pretty much a fundamental sort of truth of human nature. And I think this plays it out um, as I give you an example of this. About teaching kids gratitude. Most of us as parents are very intentional about Telling our kids, okay, what do you say when you give them something? Thank you, right? When We do not come into this world grateful creatures. We do not. We come into this world with a sense of entitlement. That it's mine. And one of the biggest, especially when kids are before the ages of seven and eight, one of the biggest struggles as a parent is to teach them to be grateful for what they have. And that the world does not own them. It's part of the fall that we think that world owes us. And so we give them the language. Thank you. In our, in our household, uh, we have this grace and gratitude journal where we try to share um, over dinner, like, what are the things you're thankful for? And, and the reality is this is that the more thankful you are, the more you, you say, I'm thankful for this, like verbalize it, even though you're not feeling it, the more thankful you become. Because the reality is that the more you ritualize that, the more you say, I'm just going to be thankful, I don't feel like, I don't feel thankful, but I am thankful for this, over time you become more thankful. Because, and you shape your desires. Friends, our kids need liturgy. They need ritual. Most parents know this, right? You go on vacation, and your schedule's out of whack, and your kids are a mess for a couple days, Why? Their sleep schedules are off. They're not going to the same place. They need regular schedules. We know this for feeding and for sleeping and for school. And this is structure and stability, and it provides order to their lives. They count on it. The people who love liturgy most around this church are children. Why? Because they know it's repeated, and they repeat it back. It gives them a structure and a framework in order to understand what's going on in the service. And it trains them. It gives them the language. And I I know this is hard. Um, You know, developing those devotional practices in our life, like, it's very hard. We're very inconsistent as a family with this Grace and Gratitude journal. It's probably been, like, a week since we've done it. It's hard to do family devotions. It's hard to pray with your kids sometimes because the chaos of having young kids and trying to live your life is that all those things are always getting squeezed out but friends I just want to tell you keep trying you have to be dogged dogged you just got to keep going after it even if your kids are interrupting all the time like mine are <laughs> you gotta do it and don't give up friends it does make a difference it really does make a difference okay but he, so let me just so We have to give our kids a grand central story. And this story is reinforced and in a sense appropriated through an intentional reinforced rituals and practices of our life. But these things in and of themselves alone without this last piece often will not mount to much at all. And it's this idea that as parents, our lives need to be models of devotion. Our life needs to be a model of devotion. One of the core truths of the Bible is that as parents, you are the single most influential Force, formative force in your children's life. You will have more spiritual impact on your kids than anybody else. More than me, more than any Christian teacher, more than any grandparent, because you're the front line. (laughs) And that's not to say that God doesn't bring others in to help and often sometimes redirect when you don't get it right. (laughs) But nevertheless, you have an awesome responsibility and your children take so much from you. And it's, that's a scary thing to think about. And one of the important truths of this is that you cannot outsource the spiritual formation of your children. Uh, in the Christian Reformed Church, we believe a lot in Christian education. And oftentimes, though, I find, in my experience, is that sometimes parents see sending their kids to a Christian school as sort of getting them out of having to form their kids themselves. Christian school is great. Sunday school is great. Catechesis here in church is great. You need all that. You need all the help you can get. But don't think you can outsource. You cannot do it. You can't outsource the spiritual formation of your children because your children live with you. They live in the the atmosphere, the hidden curriculum of your household, which is informed by all kinds of values and moral choices that are often unspoken but are part of the water they breathe or the water they drink and the air they breathe. And so our love for God, right? And this is the point. It's so important that the formation of our children flow from our own spiritual formation, our own responsibility as parents to live the faith out, to love God on our own. In my experience, that one of the most difficult things for kids growing up in faith and making the faith their own is when there's this dissonance at home. And some of you grew up in homes like this where the story was everywhere. There was all kinds of rituals. We went to church on Wednesday, on Sunday, on Sunday evening. We didn't watch sports. You know, on Sundays we did these things. I was always hearing the story. But oftentimes, there's a disconnect. And the disconnect is the fact that the parents' own devotion is wanting and lacking. That you look at the parents and it's like, I don't really see how you're transformed by this story. I don't see a wholehearted participation in the story on your own. And that, co- that dissonance... Children, you know, are rigorous lawyers when it comes to any kind of, uh, you know, um, disparity of fairness or inconsistency in how we parent or expectations. They just, they're on it like white on rice, right? And so it's so important, friends. The greatest gift that you can offer your children is your own love for God. That is the single greatest thing you can offer your kids in their spiritual formation and nurture is the lived faith example of your own life. Your own love for God is the greatest gift that you can offer them. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your strength. The love of God is that singular love, that sovereign love that trumps all loves. All of our loves bow to this love. I don't need to tell you guys to love your children. I know you love your children. What I have to tell you is you need to love God more than your children. And if you love God more than your children, you will actually then love your children more. I know it seems like a paradox, but the love of God is not a love that's in competition with other loves. The love of God, when it is the priority and the center of your life, is a love that purifies... That elevates and rightly orders all other loves. If you love your children more than God, you will mess your children up. But if you love God more than your children, you will direct them in the right way. See, the love of God, the Lord our God is one, right? When we love God with all of our heart, soul, and our strength, it creates a oneness of our life, a unity that grounds us and integrates us and our children benefit and live in this I know that sermons on parenting can be uh, guilt inducing (laughs) Um, and as parents probably one of the areas of guilt um, that we struggle with most in life and it doesn't go away even when your kids are out of the house um, is a sense that I I could have been a better parent right I could have done things better Uh, I wish I had done this differently or I screwed up here or you're thinking man I'm not doing enough at home and on the one hand. I want to say, you know, we have an awesome responsibility And we have to take that seriously Because our kids lives are our spiritual lives are in our hand. God has given us this incredible responsibility and trust But let me offer you some words of grace and hope as a conclusion first thing is this And this relates to the first point, this last point. You will fail. You have failed as parents. I know this. I have done all the time. But the greatest gift perhaps you could give your kids in the midst of failure is for them to watch you repent (laughs) in faith and receive forgiveness. That when you fall down and when you screw up, they see that. They see the dynamics in your life of faith and repentance, forgiveness and reconciliation, whether it's within the context of your marriage with, with your spouse, or whether it's with them, or whether it's in the world, that they see that dynamic of sin and grace, that, that cycle of sin and grace and repentance just playing out in your life. That is an incredible gift, because then they see, you know what? It's the same for me. It's the same for me. So that even in your failure, parents, your life, when you respond in, with faith and repentance, can be a sign to your children of God's love. But the second point is is that you don't have to parent alone. That's the whole point. That's one of the points of baptism. That's one of the reasons why it's not just the parents that are taking vows, but it's the whole community. You're not alone in your parenting. There's this whole community there extended brothers and sisters, aunts and uncles, grandparents that are all, in a sense, models of devotion and grace that are wrestling to bear witness to this big story. And you should take advantage of the church. And those of you who are single or those of you who are married without kids, you should feel free and insert yourselves and make the ch- our children your children in a sense. One of the greatest gifts of the church is the fact that, that we're not alone with parents and we ha- we're all on task in a sense, caring for our children. But the final point is this. And it's the truth of Baptism. The story of baptism is not the story of the law, (laughs) how I'm supposed to love God. Jesus is baptized, and then he goes out into the desert to be tempted. The Israelites go through the Exodus, and then they go out into the desert to be tempted. See, our approval as God's children doesn't depend on our performance in the desert, in the midst of temptation. It depends on what God has decisively done for us in Jesus Christ in his death, and in his resurrection. It's God who saves. You don't save your children. God saves your children. And to baptize your child, friend, what you're doing is you're saying, God, here, take this child. He's yours. She's yours. Take it. And you're offering them up to the grace of God. And this isn't just something you do once. And this is where baptism has to be as parents. When your kids are out of the home, you this... Font has to be the reference point. I offered my child up to God. He or she is in God's hands. He made promises. Friends, and that's what you hold on to. And that's what you pray around. And that's what should give you comfort. As so we've offered our kids up to God. And he's the one who saves. And he is a God of grace. Let's pray. Oh, Holy Father. We thank you for the gift of children, the gift of new life, and yet we are, we tremble in fear at the awesome responsibility of raising children, image bearers, and we are not adequate. We simply are not adequate, yet we know that you provide grace and hope and comfort, and so we pray for our children, that you watch over them body and soul, that they would learn the story of God's love and their responsibility in response to that. Encourage our hearts, O Lord, wherever we are as parents here, or those about to be parents, or as grandparents, to learn how to orient orient our hearts with regard to our children through this baptismal font, which promises grace and strength. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.